Hello and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues, a podcast from Kepler Trust Intelligence. Before I introduce this week's guest, your reminder that nothing we say should be construed as investment advice. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that independent financial advice should be taken before entering into any financial transaction. And with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues from Kepler Trust Intelligence. This week, I'm joined by Isabella Kaminska. Uh, I think a lot of people listening will probably be familiar familiar, sorry, with Isabella because she was the editor of FT Alphaville, which um, I think for many people was probably was and maybe still is one of the best bits of the FT uh, website or publication. Uh, she left... Actually, when did you leave? Like a year ago? Yeah, about a year ago, exactly. And to set up um, the Blind Spot, which is a sort of Alphaville-esque type challenger. Yeah, yeah, as an Alphaville challenger. So if you haven't seen that, I recommend uh, having a look. And we'll just be running through, I suppose, things that have happened over the past twelve months and and what we think is going to happen in the in the twelve months ahead. So um, maybe in true journalist fashion we can begin i think next week is davos is there anything interesting going to happen at davos well chances are no <laughs> the history of davos suggests that um they're usually incredibly behind the curve and um you know rather than being visionaries they're they're sort of re- reactionaries who um are tackling topics that were really front and center of, of the world two years ago, right? Um, so I think it's it's very much the same. What's interesting about Davos this year is that they have, they have um, usually you can get all the uh, schedules and, and the events, you can access them online, but they've closed their whole uh, platform off and they're now offering subscriptions. So if you want to even know what the agenda is, you have to subscribe to them. Um, you have to pay them like... 30 euros a month or whatever. Um, so everyone's doing the blue tick thing, which I think is very interesting. So Elon make, is making everyone pay for their blue tick status. And, and now now Davos and WEF are em- emulating him by like, you know, creating an extra layer in the hierarchy. Because obviously one of the big things at Davos is the uh, internal badge hierarchy. If you've got a white badge, you're like top of the pyramid. And then it goes further down and down um, through the colours. But now we have this new virtual uh, status and and they've got three packages. You've got the free one, which gets you absolutely nothing, the 30 euros a month, and then like an even more expensive one that gets you um, the opportunity to watch the uh, conferences uh, from from the comfort of your armchair. So um, I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I think even prior to probably the pandemic, there was a general sense that the Davos man, um, if you, if, which is, I suppose, for listeners not familiar with the term, is sort of like a international sort of elite type figure who, in the minds of conspiracy theorists, probably controls the world and things like that. Um, but I would, I would say it's more like a sort of technocratic elite type person, right? So if you look at, I think that's probably the main criticism of something like the European Union, is that it's basically a very centralised uh, technocratic organization um and i think that's probably what most if you know aside from the more conspiratorial minded people um critics of something like davos or or world economic forum um 
would probably say it's a, it's a similar sort of thing where it's you have a kind of tech group of small group of technocrats who are trying to um, you know, rule from by fiat, whatever you want to call that. I think that the probably the extent to which that was that that seemed like it was a, a thing some people were not happy with even prior to the pandemic. It seems like that's even more the case now, maybe because uh, the pandemic showed that people aren't really in control. There's like a lack of control from government. And then with the invasion of Ukraine, you just have this complete breakdown of sort of the international system. So do you think that those those sorts of things will hold less, if they held any weight anyway? I mean, you could argue they're not really doing anything. But do you think those things will, those sorts of organizations will hold less weight moving forward? So I think... Um... What's happened is really unfortunate because we've got the evolution of this mad conspiracy um, about Klaus Schwab sort of secretly trying to take over the world. And in a way, that is really doing everyone who is concerned about the forum's influence a disservice because it makes legitimate criticism of the forum um, harder because you then get bucketed in the conspiracy camp, right? Yeah. And there are legitimate criticisms to be made of the forum. And I mean, the the hypocrisies alone of like, you know, gathering all these billionaires and their private jets, um, you know, the whole mantra of what Klaus Schwab is trying to achieve there is a sort of stakeholder capitalist um, system that allows for all voices to be heard. I mean, I've I've likened it to like a massive consensus machine, like a blockchain. It's like the human a human blockchain. <laughs> um where everyone has to compromise to create um some sort of consensus. And Klaus, unlike and this is what the conspiracy theorists don't appreciate, is that Klaus in many ways is quite anti woke because he accepts everyone. He wants everyone to be in the forum. And he has platformed everyone from Vladimir Putin to Xi Jinping to Donald Trump, um, Bolsonaro. Everyone is invited to 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 the forum because Klaus is a real believer in this idea that if you don't have the uh, wingnuts at the table, then you can't um, you can't create a consensus. So he is in a weird way like. <laughs> More, you know, more anti-woke in the in the platforming sense than anybody. I mean, WEF is like a like a Twitter for the elite, right? But in human form, and um, and I think that has that is often very much overlooked. But of course, the 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 ultimate hypocrisy of of WEF is that it preaches all this transma- transparency, this idea of like ethical capitalism, and you know, putting more than just pure profit um in uh, at the front and center of your commercial operation but in reality um on the transparency front in practice wef has loads of little secretive panels and meetings it's a place where you have open sessions but you also have a lot of private sessions and those are seen as essential because you can't speak pragmatically about all sorts of things unless it is private so the so the reality of 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 life and and the way diplomacy works is you have to have private sessions so then it ends up being hypocritical um and then in terms of uh the kind of profit you know putting profits last davos itself has to be commercially viable and and who knows how many conflicts of interests are, are going on as a result of those um very close-knit conversations because there is no transparency in terms of like nobody has to say what their private investments are. Klaus doesn't reveal 
how he invests his own private wealth. We don't know that. There's no, he's not like Nancy, but at least Nancy Pelosi, when she front runs her, uh, <laughs> her decisions and, and what's going on in Congress, she has to at least declare her um, financial position, right? Klaus doesn't have to do that. We don't have a clue how he's um, yeah. you know, using that information. So those are the hypocrisies um, around. But also, I think fundamentally, it's just very dull. I've got the, because um, obviously now you can't get the agenda but by the time this goes to air, it's probably already been. But I can, I can, I've had a look at, I've had someone leak to me the agenda. I mean, you're, you're looking at sessions that are like, you know, in defense of Europe, fine. Okay, but not exactly interesting. Ma, 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 that's going to be a session with, um, uh, amongst others, uh, Andrzej Duda, so the uh, president of Poland. Um, mastering new energy econ- economics, philanthropy, a catalyst for protecting our planet quiet quitting and the meaning of work I mean, that was that was a story two years ago um, or even a year ago so it's 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 always i think on the catching up front rather than moving ahead i haven't seen any one of these panels that is really kind of like made me think oh i didn't think about that but um yeah so largely they're just it's basically a uh, kind of waste of time uh maybe maybe the (laughs) next (laughs) the next uh topic i mean you something that you one of the panels you mentioned there was on energy right and i think readers of your site maybe even prior to you setting up the website were very you were basically very pessimistic about um what was going to happen in europe because of because of the energy markets and especially in the uk and germany um and that didn't really that didn't really pan out so i mean can you talk about why why you think that didn't happen and also whether you maybe you're, maybe there's still time for you to be right in the, in the coming year. Yeah, so mea culpa because definitely I was on the kind of uh, <laughs> it's going to be disaster this winter um, side of things. Although I was very much I was very critical of the other. Um, you know, in some quarters, there was this idea that Europe would fall apart and it would be chaos and revolution. I always pulled back against that because. Even if we had blackouts and uh, energy scarcity, my view on Europe is that in the end, Europeans would come together and we would not go like totally, you know, crazy because I think lockdown showed how how much of a sense of togetherness um, we have and and. European populations always surprise me in terms of their resilience and and coherence um, when it comes to sort of abiding by um government sort of recommendations so i i wasn't of the opinion that everything was going to kind of go into hell and helena um what's the phrase <laughs> helena helena Hahn basket that's it helena yes. basket um uh but i was wrong in terms of the blackout so we've obviously managed to sail through the winter so far some people i mean realistically the pressure point was always going to be january but it now looks like we're going to be fine. Now, a lot of that has to do with the unexpectedly warm weather we've had in Europe. Had we had an average winter, it would have been challenging enough. If we had had a very cold winter, blackouts would have been guaranteed, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, but we've had this exceptionally warm winter. And the joke, you know, I've been pushing around, it's a joke. I don't believe it, but it is funny. It's almost like NATO put on a weather machine to help itself, right? Yeah. Um, so it's been incredibly useful. And also, we never anticipated how quickly the Germans would react. They've built this LNG terminal almost overnight. 
it shows what you can do if you take bureaucracy out of the um out of the um conversation um so that is very encouraging it's like with the vaccines or with 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 lockdown project warp well what was it warp speed if we if we really need to do something and we take out the bureaucracy amazing things can happen so those were the things i didn't anticipate um that said we still have to consider the fact that most of last year we were still having pipeline gas and we have now moved almost entirely into imported lng and whatever happens, the base cost of that is going to be higher than pipeline gas, simply because the actual logistics of bringing over gas in LNG form are always going to be more expensive than pipeline gas. So the base cost is going to normalize around a higher level. So at the moment, we, you know, prices have really overreacted. They've now almost under, like they've they've completely now gone to the other extreme. But they're likely to go back up and the, the, settle around some sort of, you know, 10%, 20% higher than what would have been the norm. Yeah. Um, and that is going to feed through into inflation um, eventually. Um, probably, you know, bar all the lockdown stuff and all the other stuff, it, we would have, it would have been a good thing to some degree. But... Um, but we need to watch inflation. I think it's not necessarily, you know, this year is going to be the challenge because we're going to have to have 100% dependency on LNG. If there's a cold, cold winter anywhere. There's going to be competition from the rest of the world for that LNG. Um, and we've got other constraints as well um, coming our way. If and when tensions of China increase, um, if we have, um, you know, at the moment, a lot of the uh, substitution has been going into renewables. Renewables are, when it comes to solar, entirely exclusively almost all our solar comes from China. So if there's any any tensions on that front, that's going to be increasingly hard to um, manage. Um, so that's my overview. I think yeah. overall... Um, the cost of sort of bailing out bulb in the UK has turned out to be lower than expected. But this again is because um, the overall, because of the correction in, in, in the prices and in the wholesale prices. Um, we're now pu pushing through this uh, $60 barrel price cap. We'll see how that, um, you know, whether the market responds to that. At the moment, it, it's going to be okay because the forces are with us. It'll be tested if there is any shortages. So if there's a hurricane at next September or there's any kind of um, other geopolitical upset, say, in a, in the Middle East, um, that's when things might get increasingly tight. Okay. Well, you, I mean, you, you touched on a couple of interesting points there. So one is inflation. I mean, I think there's other factors beyond the sort of energy shock that we had last year that are, that are driving it. Do you think that... The central bank, I mean, say in the in the UK and the US, will be able to keep a lid on it this year, or do you think it's going to be a sort of nineteen seventies type scenario where it lasts for quite a, you know? So I think in the short term, in the short term, I think we're going to have a correction. So I think we will have plateaued for the rest. You know, I I do think the interest rate hikes we've had so far are going. To, they're going to ease up on those because um, the economy is obviously responding to that. That said, the long-term trend, I think, is still inflationary. I don't think we're going to get into the sort of core deflationary world that we were in post-2008, mm. um, not least because of 
like the Inflation Reduction Act, ironically called, and and all the <laughs> investment that we are pushing into renewables, the cost of the transition alone and the reality of greenflation is is a thing. Like that is a thing. Okay. Um, if we end up having any more sort of, there are, you know, I interviewed Nuri Rubini a, a few months ago and um, I agree with him. Like there are multiple wars we are facing and war is inflationary by definition, whether it's the war on climate change, whether it's the war against Russia, whether it's a potential um, trade war with China, all these things move us into an inflationary um, norm. And so I agree with him that even if we have a temporary sort of reduction, it's going to go, we're not, the days of like negative yields, I think are going to be gone. Um, and you see that now because the ECB is finally moving ahead with 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 interest rates, and you've got the BOJ. Obviously, that was the big one in the last month, um, changing its framework. So those forces, I think, are now out of the bag, and it'll be hard to put them back in. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think um, a little bit of inflation if it's controlled, is entirely what we need to restructure the economy and make it focus on productivity again. Because one of the problems is that the zero negative rate world spawned all these, like, you know, the vulgar town, like bullshit companies that are doing God knows what, uh, from crypto, you know, FTX, all that sort of stuff that emerged from the from the Ponzi, you know, bubble inducing uh, rate environment. So um, I think normalizing around three or four percent is really good for the economy. It will probably end up helping us um, really focus on productive innovation and, and and a transfer away from a service economy more to a capital intensive one, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I think Russell Napier has said something similar like that a couple of months ago. But um, yeah, what, one of the points you, you touched on there was um, sort of basically both companies. Uh, and I think um, if you look over the past decade, there's, there's been, in the grand scheme of things, you know, 10, 12 years is actually quite a long period of time, in, you know, to some extent. And so you have quite a lot of companies that started there. And so something like, you know, the one I, I dislike the most is like Uber, really, just because it's, it's made to be seen like this amazing thing, but actually, which, and I don't want to take away from, you know, it being the, the product they made and so on, but it's just like, this is just a unprofitable company that, that subsidizes your taxi trips and made it a bit more convenient, but even now it doesn't seem like that much more convenient. Um, but so this week I, I, I saw, I kind of thought that all of this stuff was done, right? Like that the past, the excesses of the past couple of years where you just had so many companies uh, coming to market, um, whether it's like IPO, SPAC, direct listing with like just massively inflated valuation, no earnings, difficult to see how they would even get to to being profitable uh was done but then so this this chat gbt gpt was <laughs> called whatever it's called came out and um so i should caveat what i'm about to say but by, by saying i think it's still really amazing i think this is a really interesting product or chat bot or search engine whatever you want to call, whatever you want to call it uh and there are it is pretty yeah amazing that someone has been able to create this thing um but when then it, you, you hear that the company is valued at $29 billion, um, even though it's, I think that they haven't said how much they make in revenue. Like, I think the company that owns it is called OpenAI. 
they the, from press reports it says like low low tens of millions. So um, I actually wrote something this week saying if you looked at if you were generous and said low tens of millions would be sixty million, which doesn't really make sense. But if you were being generous and said sixty million, that would be like five hundred times revenue valuation. Uh, and then loads of insiders are selling shares, right? So if, if people are doing that, it's generally not a sign that you have great faith in um, in, the, in the ability of the company to make money going, or like you think that its valuation is justified. So, I mean, I don't know if you have, if you think that that sort of thing, first, I suppose it's two questions. One is like, do you think that sort of thing is done? Like we'd finished with that kind of thing. And it was really just a phenomenon of the past, like 10, 15 years where you just had really low rates that allowed people to pursue rubbish ideas, basically, um, that sounded cool. And then at the same time, do you actually, do you mean, chat, this is kind of a controversial one, right? Because maybe this is an amazing new thing that is going to massively change the world. Uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on the AI type but, thing, which is like, the, I yeah, know. no, I do. I do. Um, so I think one of the key points is that when, when, funding and capital is cheap yeah you have you don't have to prioritize your investments in goods and services that are needed today right so when capital is tight and and you have to pay a high interest rate for it um you're gonna you're gonna want to return right so you have to focus on productive um ventures that are going to generate profits and revenues very quickly because you don't want to be paying over the roof for the capital loan for a long time. So that is the fundamental difference, right? So when when interest rates are high, the, the economy is basically sending a signal, we need to invest in companies and, and, and services that are going to sort out our shortages, sort out all the problems that we have today. People need these goods, they're going to pay for them. There's no There's no risk here, you will get your money back. And you only invest in the stuff that you know will be profitable. When rates are zero, you've, it all becomes belief focused, right? Because you, you're basically, you know, capital is cheap. So you've got a lot of time, essentially, before you have to really worry about paying it all back. And you can be, you, you, there's a luxury in terms of like where you put your money and you can throw it about and all sorts of crazy things. And you do the whole VC thing, like a gambling thing, or well, one of these crazy things will definitely pay off and I'll do that. And that's where I think we're, <laughs> we're coming out of that world. But I think when it comes to something like chat, G, G, B, was it GPT? Um, there is a contingent that sees that as a, as a necessary, like we must invest in this. Otherwise we are not going to reach the escape velocity we need to transition into, you know, whatever the singularity. So there's a a lot of that thinking in in Silicon Valley, right? So even if um, interest rates are higher, they're prepared to, to blow it all on this gen, you know, I think it's called generative AI, right? Because they see it as the means, if you've got it, then you can then, you can then use that and quantum computing and all the other stuff to create, God knows what, you know, all the new materials uh, that, you know, that one of the things they think they'll be able to do is create new kind of atomic structures or I'm not a scientist, molecular structures, I guess. Um, uh, Or, you know, with, with chat GBT, that will be the basis for an AI that can, you know, sort all sorts of complex problems that we can't currently solve ourselves. So, um, that's why it's getting the the money 
in my opinion. That said, it's a real leap. It's a real leap in faith because um, whether it delivers, I mean, at the moment, ChatGPT, what we do know, I asked it yesterday to write me how much, um, you know, how much energy it uses. And it's incredibly energy intensive, right? It's, it's not quite like cryptocurrency yet, but as it gets more and more sophisticated, um, the amount of server energy it's going to take up is going to end up competing with crypto and then probably exponentially uh, outperform, um, oh, overdo yeah. it. So, so I think it's a, and based on the deal that tells, so I think Microsoft has re- recently, Semaphore was reporting the other day that. Uh, Microsoft is looking to invest 10 billion in it, but it's a very interesting structure. Um, it'd be part of a complicated deal in which the company would get 75% of OpenAI's profits until it recoups its investment. Um, after yeah. that threshold is reached, it would revert to a structure that reflects ownership of Open OpenAI with Microsoft having a 49% stake, other investors taking another 49% and OpenAI's nonprofit parent getting 2%. Now, of course, Microsoft has an interest in this because it has a big cloud computing um, business, Azure. It's the second most um, popular one after AWS. Um, So by supporting OpenAI, which is going to be a huge demand point for for cloud computing, um, it's sort of investing in something that's going to use its other services so it's a virtuous circle circle for microsoft um but nonetheless the the Mm. structure of the business model suggests to me that this is going to be much harder than appears uh to you know initially appears to the eye the structure is complex um and there's a revenue exchange in favor of microsoft but whether we can actually reach escape velocity velocity and create a profit profitable business is yet to be seen that said um you know it is gonna at the moment post ftx a lot of these cloud computing companies um are are I guess, getting hurt by the lack of blockchain businesses coming to them. Like blockchain itself. Is that that actually the case? Like how I think of crypto as being in the grand scheme of things, like quite a small industry. Was that actually making them that much money? So it's not so much crypto itself. It's all the kind of derivatives. Like every every single other person was trying to do a blockchain thing, right? So yeah. there's crypto, the crypto universe, uh, which is still relatively contained. But all those crypto firms, and as you got into the NFTs and all the other kind of um, iterations of, of, of crypto you know AWS was wooing those uh, clients they were ironically trying to sell their cloud computing services to all the miners and i mean that's the irony of it like so it's supposed to be all decentralized but they were you know AWS had a very clear cryptocurrency business and a blockchain business yeah. that was seen as like a growth opportunity for AWS and for the other cloud services right but because I suspect blockchain is now coming to the point of um, realization that it's not the all, end all that it was going to be, that many people thought it was going to be, that's going to cool off. So they're looking for a new, new, a new type thing, thing to, to service. And I think ChatGBT is exactly that. So it comes in, it has huge energy uh, and com- computational needs, um, and it then powers you know, the cloud computing services. It makes sense for them to do it. Mm. um 
of course, the fact that Microsoft has to buy the company that it is spying its services from is is ironic. Um, whether that sort of vendor financing loop, um, you know, has, you know, whether it can break through into its own um, profit line, I, I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm quite skeptical. I think I think at the moment it's very energy intensive. I don't see the use cases, and I'm worried about how it's going to be deployed in society because I'm not sure it's good to outsource your brain to an AI in that way. Well, um, I mean, the thing I wrote this week, I mean, if you look around, there's loads of instances of it just be it making it. So like there's one guy who looked for scientific studies or, or papers and something like that, and the bot just made a bunch of them up. So as in the titles were fake, the authors were fake. Um which maybe is more, you know, more of a human thing to do than well, this an AI is, this thing. this is the problem: is that it could create this sort of, um, you know, like ants when they lose, they lose the trail, and they mm. end up going in a loop and then self, like, killing themselves because they just, they can't get out of their loop. It's called an ant 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 mill, I think. Yeah. Um, it, that's the risk here: is that it, we start defaulting like lazy people who cheat the system anyway, <laughs> or people who want to plagiarize. It'll make it easier for them. They will default to using ChatGPT to, you know, do their homework, their, you know, academic studies, God knows what. But ChatGPT isn't perfect. It reminds me of like when you watch, when you look at those AI generated um, illustrations, very often they're very impressive. But then when you look closely, you notice like the dog noses are all merged and you realize like the collar is made out of weird, you know, you know, subparts of an animal. Like it's, 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 it's creepy and it's often weird and it gets from far away it looks about right but when you look closely it's all distorted and and basically fucked up i think chat gpt is very similar so it's okay if you're like writing fiction or something that is where errors are not a problem but if you start using it to write academic papers yeah. or if you're using it for journalism which i think you know i saw a tweet the other day like what do you do when you're you've got a journalist who files suddenly is filing copy really quickly <laughs> it's fairly clean to edit you know um but then you realize it's chat gbt you know that is a problem because when i tried it for for doing you know just experimenting with it to do a piece about the bioweapon convention which is very hard to you know as a journalist it's it's very all the, all the source material is very fragmented you you really have to search for it yeah i put in a basic set like write me a story about how the bioweapons convention works and it it came up with a very authoritative piece which if you don't know nothing if you know nothing about the bioweapon convention you would think oh yeah that, that must be correct because it not only emulates um human prose but it does it very authoritatively yeah. but when you look at the details and you go oh well that's not it's not 50 members it's 80 members in reality you see the problems it's 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 a really good con man in that sense and if that's, we normalize yeah. that in society then the risk is that we end up like messing yeah. up a whole lot of stuff <laughs> like aeroplanes will start falling out of the sky <laughs> because people aren't Chat really GBT like, lied about where the airport was yeah now i think that was basically the exact conclusion i had when looking at it and, and um writing something this week which is for the it's it's really good at um a kind of like verbalism what what it reminds me of is like if you read an article 
uh, by a journalist who who's writing about something that's kind of complicated, and they say like a legal case. This is when when you often notice it, and they don't really understand the the legal terms or the nuances of the case, so they'll just regurgitate the all of the all of the technical terminology. And when yeah. you read it, you go, if you don't understand what that means, that could sound plausible, but actually, it doesn't really make that much sense. You've just kind of regurgitated something that sounds like it makes sense, but, what, but if you actually know what you're talking about, it doesn't. Um, and so from, I th- it's, given that that's the case, I just find it, for, like as a, you know, naturally after this happened, there's this huge hype about hey, AI is going to be this amazing industry to invest in, um, which again, it plaus- it's plausible that that could be the case, but just from limited experience, it just, this kind of doesn't seem like it is. I mean, and especially at the, even if you were, if you, even if the company was worth, say 29 billion i mean like how much growth is that already factoring in right it's kind of crazy so i don't i just don't really see it as being a a viable thing yeah not just whether it's viable it's also if if it does become viable what are the implications i mean it would have to be you know on a it would really have to be on another level um still to be able to compete with a human um in terms of accuracy and all those other factors that we were discussing. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm just worried about the consequences. And, and what if, you know, ultimately the, the master AI we've all been fearing is, is actually quite, quite stupid in many ways, because it's, um, it's like a real human learning <laughs> from like, what is its input? Um I don't know. Do you know, like, how, how, given we live in this obsessive, like, disinformation, fake news world, like, OpenAI is taking the internet (laughs) as its food stock. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a great source, obviously, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and if you if you end up like saying, well, obviously we can't, like, OpenAI can't, it should be worth putting in, like, you know what it thinks about conspiracy theories i don't know whether they um segment the input they might do they might only teach it from you i don't know what do you know i have i'm I'm not sure what the no i don't know i don't i i don't know how it works but just... because if it's entirely open-ended then all the crap on the internet is teaching it as well and then you get like that microsoft tay thing that bot that ended up becoming oh, yeah. a nazi <laughs> yeah yeah that was quite funny uh but if you start segmenting it and saying, well, you can only have like the source material from the New York Times or whatever, but then then the AI is potentially, you know, biased. So it's not the act. It's worth figuring out because you're creating an intelligence that is going to be mm. somewhat influenced by its surroundings and it's the, the surroundings you know, going back to WEF. <laughs> they're not <laughs> they don't always agree on everything. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. I think it's it's one to watch, but I just I guess my my point in the thing I wrote anyway was like there just seems to be we've had this like long period where loads of companies were clearly coming up with stuff that was very subpar and just sort of utopian in what it promised. And like instead of realizing that, even though so many of these companies have just bombed, everyone's immediately jumping on the next hype train. Uh, but yeah, anyway, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think you make a good point, and I think I think this is precisely the next big uh the next I big think. hope we have to move on from blockchain don't we so this is, uh, yeah. the, this is the new thing yeah potentially okay well slightly different topic so another another of the companies which um i can never really tell if it should belong in the in the category of companies i just described um as in 
promising a lot but not necessarily delivering is, is uh, Spotify and perhaps streaming in general. Um, so I've always had some skepticism about Spotify just because they did a direct listing and when you're not making money, so it's a bit like you've just cashed in and never have to work again, even if everything goes wrong. Um, but to be fair to them, so the, I, there, was a, there was a good piece by um, David Stevenson, uh, who I think may have worked, maybe may a former colleague of yours, kind of. I think he was at the FT. Um, but he writes like a weekly newsletter that's quite good. And um, he was looking at the, the figures, and basically there was this fear like everyone's going to cancel their Spotify subscription. And um, it didn't hasn't at least yet thus far, right? Doesn't seem like it really happens. They keep increasing. It's like double digit growth in terms of revenue um, and in terms of new subscribers and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know how much you thought about this as a topic, but do you do you think that this is a vi- this is like one a viable business moving forward, or do you think it's a viable industry? I suppose the wider streaming industry, or do you think it's one of these? things that has kind of popped up as a result of the last 10 years and perhaps isn't viable. Um, so are they profitable? I, I, I am not, I'm not familiar no. enough with their, with their numbers. So uh, the answer is no, they're not. They're but still they not profitable. <laughs> yeah, but they could be one day. They could be. So, but, and, and they, <laughs> when was their direct listing? I think it was 2018, but I, I would, if okay. someone listening may want to double, so, double check that because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, presumably, if they're not profitable yet, they're going to have to, like, this is going to be the year that a lot of these businesses are going to have to <clears throat> deliver profitability or else, um, you know, the cost of capital is just going to become prohibitively expensive. Um, yeah. So I think as a, as a business, streaming makes sense to me. The problem is there's so much competition now. Can Spotify maintain, you know, is it it's definitely like benefiting from first mover um, advantage, but there's now so much competition in streaming and the, you know, Joe Rogan is, you know, I think when it must've been over a year ago now when there was all that um, controversy about whether he, I can't remember one of some music musician was saying he should be kicked off Spotify. Did you remember? Um yeah, yeah, that was quite a big thing. But they paid a lot of money to have him. I think they paid. They paid a lot of money, and they didn't so. kick him off. But if you go now to the Joe Rogan thing, you get all these sort of alert, like uh, warnings, like this this show is potentially wrong. You know, they've added like all these flags um, to to. Uh, that's their way of dealing with it. So I guess that's good. Um, I don't know how how beyond that how much censorship they have been doing. It seems to me to be a fairly I mean I haven't I haven't personally detected any but maybe that's that's the way censorship works <laughs> I don't know um maybe you know more than me if they withstand the pressure to deplatform people then I think probably they will maintain their edge the risk is obviously that you get the fragmentation that you've seen in the social media where people start getting deplatformed and then they go off and start their own rival platforms mm. and then you get the sort of collapse of the tower of babel effect um so i, I think actually, yeah i actually don't i actually don't th- think that will happen like i think if you look at them i was thinking about it over the past couple of days because um i mean i think you, you're an example right, of, of i've noticed in the past couple of years it's been this trend of a lot of journalists who work at a big publication and then they will move 
because they, for whatever reason, they get tired. They move, they start their own thing, or they, usually it's moving to Substack. And if you, I was so just, I've been quite interested in in Substack and looking at the numbers and how viable it is. Um, and it, I just, I, I just, I'm quite skeptical about it, just because I think. Oh no, I'm skeptical. That's why I never went on Substack because. Yeah, but 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 not not because of censorship or something like that. Just because I think that if if you look at the newspaper or media business since it started, there's always kind of you've you've basically always had advertising, and so because Substack is predicated on not having really not really having advertising, I just don't know how viable it is. But the reason I say that, I think that what's interesting potentially about Spotify is that it could become more some or streaming in general. Um, may have to become a bit like cable TV. Like I remember, I didn't, I didn't, I never had Sky when I was a kid, and I rem- always remember going to people's houses who did have it and thinking it was crazy that you were paying, you're paying however much you you are in a subscription to get a service that you then have to watch adverts on as well. Because I was thinking, you know, the adverts should pay for the service you're getting, but obviously they don't. And I think that maybe that a similar thing will happen with uh, Spotify and and. You know, streaming services more broadly, where you pay this kind of base fee of whatever ten quid a month or something like that, but the reality is it just won't cover their costs, and they're not going to make money from it. So potentially, they well, they already are introducing advertising, and so I wonder if if that is it will become kind of like Sky or something, right, where you have, you pay this fi- fixed fee per month, and then you still have to go through the ads. The only potential problem with that, right, is that if you if you um, if you think about why people paid for premium in the first place, it was so they didn't have to have advertising. So I don't know how much people would accept that. Um, but I think that that's kind of where I think it will have to go. If, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't know enough about Spotify's um, business model to, to comment, but I know enough about, <clears throat> I know enough about Substack and I think Substack um, has exactly that issue. Although, if you have a Substack, there's nothing stopping you from advertising on it. You, you, yeah. you can still put like a banner or do all the kind of sponsored content where you, you know, name drop X product in your in your writing. Nothing's they don't prevent you from doing that. But Spotify doesn't get a cut of that. <laughs> it goes straight to the um, to whoever the creator is, right? So, um, I think Spotify. You know, it's obviously not profitable yet. It's had a huge lo- chunk of um, investment. Um, it's got, but it's burning. I think through that cash now, their main, then you know, it's very weighted towards the superstars who make the bulk of the um, the cash. Um, right. You know, it, it works for like a handful of uh, very you know successful journalists like Matt Taibbi or whoever. They can really make it work, but the average journalist. You're talking about who, Substack now, right? Like not you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Not- so when you leave and you go to Substack, I think a lot of journalists did. I was very concerned. I saw it as like the Uber equivalent for journalists. So people going, "Oh yeah, I want the freedom, and I can determine when I work." Blah blah blah. But what they don't realize is that they are losing a hell of a lot of the scaling benefit of being in a news organization. They are. Um, they are not going to have holidays. They're subscribe like subs- once you get subscribers, you feel like you have to do work all the time. Like they don't, yeah. you know, they're paying you monthly, and if you take like a two week holiday, it's going to piss them off, right? And if you're a single author, so you're not really accounting for that. You're not accounting for illness, um, so you don't just have to uh, make your, you know, whatever equivalent that you're working at we're making at, at your newspaper. You have to make more to cover for all of those incidentals. So. 
Um, I think a lot of journalists being kind of ego obsessed <laughs> didn't necessarily think about that, which is why I never did it because I wanted to create a scaled, my intention was always to try and scale things up as quickly as possible because I knew that without scaling, it wouldn't work. Now, Substack has since realized this and now they're kind of, they wouldn't offer me a white label service because that would be optimal for me. Yeah. But um, now they are doing that more. So you, you'll see Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger have now like moved their Substacks to um, non-Substack URLs. Yeah. Um, and they're just using the, the you know, it's like powered by Substack, but it's not, it's its its own brand and it's very much like focused on scaling up. Um, but they, and Substack offers, you know, some sort of like like Uber started like realizing that, you know, you could collectivize the drivers and offer, offer them better. You could be you know, peddling sort of insurance to them on, on preferential terms and stuff like that. So Substack then like behind the scenes is selling you like access to, you know, LexisNexis or copyright, you know, um, approved images like that they, they have a deal with, right, for their offers. And you benefit from stuff like that a little bit, but it really depends on what deal you have. But even then... I just don't think it's ever going to be as successful as a scaled up news operation because you you have all this fragmentation and yeah. the authors themselves eventually a lot of the time it's based around like a specific fad and they do great for like a year but then people move on yeah. to have a really you know to have that brand differentiation in the long term is very hard if you've started just on a single name basis. But you know the, that's why they were that's why they were targeting investment writers and financial writers because that has that has a history of like you know big names making it viable in the newsletter business. Um, yeah. But we will see. Um, I, I I tend to agree with you though that it will be a challenge. Yeah. Well, there you go. Not only do you get thoughts on the market here, you get insights into the future of the uh, the media business as well. So, yeah, that's probably a good a good point at which stop. So, uh, uh, Izzy, thanks very much for for joining us, and uh, perhaps we'll chat again at some point in the future. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.